0: Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1, and we're going to primarily be in verses 19 to 27 this morning. And The title of the message is, Questioning Your Faith. Napoleon Bonaparte is widely regarded as one of the finest military commanders in history, and he commanded the French military from the late 1700s to the early 1800s. And the strategies that he employed in his battles that he fought and he led his armies into are still studied today in many military academies around the world. One of the things that contributed to Napoleon's success in battle was his ability to communicate his battle orders clearly. See, they didn't have radios. They didn't have link 16 and various things to automatically communicate what we were going to do you had to communicate them orally in some fashion. and He would write down his orders that he would distribute to his military commanders. And legend has it that he had a very unique way of refining his military orders to ensure that they would be well understood and put into practice. See, it's not enough to just hear the orders or be able to read the orders and admire them for their eloquence or their carefully alliterated points. You actually had to be able to put them into practice and put them into, uh, into your tactics as you maneuvered. You had to obey the orders if they were going to do any good. So it is said that, that Napoleon employed somebody that he called the marginal idiot as part of his command staff. And the job of the marginal idiot was to be an idiot, more or less. Actually, many people on the news today could probably apply for that job. But This man was of marginal intelligence. He could barely read, but what Napoleon would do prior to distributing his orders was he would write them out and then he would give them to the marginal idiot. And if the marginal idiot could read them and understand them and then explain them to somebody else, he felt like those orders are ready to go into battle because in the fog of friction of war, there's a lot going on, and the, the orders need to be very simple and easy to understand by the people who are going to carry them out. So that was the job of the marginal idiot. And if the marginal idiot couldn't understand them and couldn't successfully explain them to others, Napoleon knew he had more work to do. He had to refine those orders to make sure that they were understood, they were remembered, and they were put into practice. The instructions had to be obeyed if they were going to be effective. Seventeen centuries before Napoleon was writing out battle orders, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was communicating a very similar thing in the message that we have, in the text that we have before us this morning. He wrote to emphasize that it's not enough to hear God's word, you must also obey God's word, you must put it into practice. James wrote this letter to really challenge Christians to live out their Christian life. If you have an authentic faith, it ought to be obvious in the way you live. Authentic Christianity is not just a set of orthodox beliefs. It's not just head knowledge. It's not having the right theology, although it's certainly part of it. It's ultimately, how does it live out in and through your life? It always shows itself through our behavior. Genuine, Christian, authentic faith always makes major changes in the way we live our lives. Here in chapter one, we've already covered and examined how a person with an authentic faith responds to trials. In verses two to four, we saw that uh, James writes that we should consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, when trials come upon a, a believer, they aren't just purposeless. God has a purpose in them, and it's to strengthen our faith. It's to put endurance in our faith. It's to put concrete and rebar into the foundations of our faith so that we might be able to stand firm when those trials come. He's interested in drawing us closer to him, not driving us farther apart. In verses 5 through 12, James addresses, well, what do I do when I don't know what to do? James says you should ask God. You should pray to God in faith, believing that God will provide you the wisdom necessary to navigate your trial in a way that's pleasing in his sight. He says you need to do it without doubting, without being double-minded. I really want my trial to end like this, uh, but of course I want to be faithful, God. No, he says pray to be faithful, to honor him in the midst of the trial. And he says, look beyond your earthly circumstances and look toward your heavenly reward, which has been promised to all who have genuine saving faith. It's been promised by Christ himself in verse 12. The Lord has promised to those who love him that eternal reward, that crown of life. In verses 13 through 18, we see that, that those, those very trials that God brings into our lives in order to strengthen us, in order to, to draw us closer to him, sometimes because of our own sin and our own strong desires, we can turn those trials into opportunities for sin and temptations to sin. And we might blame God. We might complain against God. We might wonder about God's goodness and God's kindness and God's sovereignty and God's care. James says, no, your sin is not God's fault. It's your fault. It's because of your strong desires. When you're tempted, it's your fault. And he says that God is in the habit all day, every day, of giving good and perfect gifts. And he puts on display in verse 18, if you'd read it with me, in the exercise of his will, this is exhibit A of his best gift. In the exercise of his will, this is God's will, he brought us forth, by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He brought us forth by the word. He made us born again by the word. He regenerated us by the word. And this brings us to James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, where James gives us not only the key to responding to trials and the key to resisting temptation, but in reality, it's much bigger than that. It really is the key to all of Christian living. These verses are important that we understand and digest them appropriately. Let me read them this morning and set them before our hearts and minds, starting in verse 19. James writes, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James is writing the, this this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's he's giving every Christian soldier our marching orders if you will our instructions for living out our Christian faith these are our orders from headquarters these are not these are not suggestions These are, there are commands buried here that we're expected to obey. And if you're going to live out a faith that's pleasing to God, it's important that we understand these verses. In James 1, 19 to 27, James gives us, or he implies, there's three diagnostic questions here to help you and I evaluate the authenticity of our faith. There are three questions that center around our response to God's word. See, how you and I respond to God's Word really holds the key to honoring God in the midst of trials. How you and I respond to God's Word holds the key to how you resist temptation. How you and I respond to God's Word holds the key to discovering if you have a worthless religion and a worthless faith, or if you have a worthy religion and an authentic faith. It all centers around our response to the Word of God. Can we agree, at least, that it's really important that you know the difference whether you have an authentic faith or a worthless faith. It has eternal significance. It's not a a, a secondary issue when it comes to eternity. So you and I need to evaluate these three diagnostic questions this morning, and they're very simple to say, a little bit more difficult to evaluate. (laughs) Question one, are you a hearer? Are you a hearer? And we see this in verses 19 to 21. James says, this you know, you need to understand this and know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. There are some who look at verse 19 and and immediately apply this to marriage counseling. And there is zero doubt. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. There is some wisdom in applying them to relationships. But that's not the context or, or the point that James is making here because these verses right here in 19, 20, 21 are all vitally connected to what came before and what, they're connected to what comes after and they all center around God's word. Look at verse 18. He says, God brought us forth or he regenerated us by the word of truth. That's the gospel. It has to deal with the word of God. Verse 21 Contains a call to receive the word implanted. And again, this is the word of God implanted. Verses 22 to 25 emphasize the importance of doing the word and putting it into practice in your life. He also uses the term perfect law, which is another synonym for the word of God. And it would seem logical that James is not suffering from some sort of first century ADHD as he wrote verse 19 and 20 there. Those are not an aside. He's not, he's not taking a quick rabbit trail somewhere else. Those really center around and are, are buried in a context that has to do with how do we understand and receive and hear the word of God. I think that's what James is giving to us this morning. Paul wrote in Romans 10.17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our ability to hear is essential to our faith. It's not a secondary issue. It is a primary issue. We need to hear it. Hearing is the conduit by which we're saved. And it's also the means by which we're sanctified and we're grown and we're matured. James is saying you know these commands. This is not the first time I've told them to you. James was their pastor. He came to Saving Faith after his brother was resurrected. He was a pastor in that first church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to those people who had been scattered abroad. They know him well. These are his members of of the flock of of God there at Jerusalem at one point. He says, you know this. and, And these are directed to everyone. He says, but everyone must be. These are not for Just pastors or elders or deacons. Every person needs to come under the authority of these words here from James. There are four commands that James gives in these three verses. Three of them are in quick order there in verse 19. And the last one we'll see in verse 21. The first command is this. It's You must be quick to hear. You must be quick to hear. Early Christians did not have a copy of God's Word. As a matter of fact, this is the first New Testament letter written. They don't have copies of the Old Testament either. Most of what they heard and came to understand about the Word of God was transmitted orally and verbally. And they would listen to it. They would listen to people who have studied it, explain it, and apply it. So it's important that they could hear it and you must be quick to hear. He's saying, don't be slow about listening. When the word is being read and explained, be ready to listen intently. Be hungry for it. Be anxious for it. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians verse uh, chapter 2, verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing later about the effect of the word of God, writing to the, the church at Thessalonica. And he says this and. First Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also, and this is important, which also performs its work in you. Go back to James. So the word is not just for salvation. It's also for sanctification, and it performs its work in those of us who are believers. The word works in us and through us to make us more like Christ. There's a second command there in verse 19 of James chapter 1. And that is, you must be not only quick to hear, but slow to speak. Slow to speak. James is not referring to talking really slow. That's not what he's doing. He's calling for restraint and to avoid hasty reactions to what is heard. He's calling for thoughtful and careful consideration of what God's word says and what it means by what it says. Evaluate it thoroughly before speaking either for it or against it. Sometimes I have a conversation with my wife and and she sometimes calls me on this but as she's asking me something i think i already know where this is going and i'm already working on the response every husband may know what this is like but the reality is i as i am formulating my response i am no longer listening to her i'm not i may not be talking but i'm not listening anymore and we can do that with a sermon we can do that as we hear god's word we can justify ourselves well that doesn't really apply to me or we can think to ourselves you know this is a good one for my wife to listen to uh, the the reality is we need to take a pause and listen be quick to or be slow to speak don't respond right away Proverbs says 18 th- in proverbs 18:13 he who gives an answer before he hears it is folly and shame to him it's not a good idea to respond before you even know what it says take some time it takes time to understand God's word rightly and apply it. Katie, you'll be glad to know that I spent a little bit of time before I stood up here this morning. She had asked me about it, and, and I said, yeah, it, it took me a little while to study this. I'm probably not as fast as Brian. It takes me a long time to, to study it. But you don't want to be behind this desk or, or really speaking on God's behalf in any context without actually understanding what God's word says. Be slow to speak. It's not never speak. But be slow. Make sure you understand it before you're speaking either for it or against it or the way it was it was uh, presented. God's word is always true. The way it's presented might not always be true. We need to be good Bereans as we listen to what is proclaimed from this pulpit, no matter who's standing here. There's a third command here. It's not only be quick to hear and slow to speak, but you must be slow to anger. There are multiple words that that. James could have chosen to talk about anger. There's the explosive, fly-off-the-handle, really violent type of anger. Uh, That's not what he chose here. He actually chose a more settled and persistent anger. This is the type of of anger that denotes a strong feeling of resentment and and anger and active hostility. It's quite possible that this is the type of anger that actually isn't seen by all of us but it's internal and it's seen by God. I had a, a, a man and a woman here a, a number of years ago and he used to send me emails to uh, help me um, pray better. He didn't like the way I prayed in public and so he, and his primary thing that he didn't like about my prayers were, Chuck, you overemphasize the sovereignty of God and uh and i don't know whether i overemphasize it or underemphasize it but the the bible surely emphasized it i i tried to explain to him that that you know most of my prayer is actually just bible verses weaved together um and and so over the course of the next couple months we had several discussions on it and i came to find out he's not really mad at me he doesn't like god's sovereignty And he was really angry about the idea that God might be sovereign in his decision to become a Christian. And he rebelled against it. Eventually he left the church. He's not sitting here this morning. But he left the church and he was angry, not at me. He was angry at God for proclaiming that he's sovereign in elements of salvation. He's slow to anger because you can't listen when that occurs. Notice verse 20 actually gives another reason, a reason why you should be slow to anger. Verse 20 says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When we get angry at hearing of the word and responding to the word with anger, it does not achieve the righteousness that God demands. Our anger, no matter how righteous we may think it is, and, and I do understand in Ephesians it says, be angry and yet do not sin. I understand that. But the reality is most of us can't make that separation. Most of us mix sin with our anger as we respond in our temper, and the way we use words. Our anger does not accomplish what is right in the sight of God. There's a fourth command here in verse 21, and that's be eager to receive. Be eager to receive. In order to receive the word, he says there, he says, therefore, putting aside, and that idea of putting aside, it's also translated as putting off at various times in the New Testament, but it has the idea of taking off something that is uh, taking off a garment and laying it aside. In this case, it's, he's talking figuratively, putting off all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. There's two things that we need to lay aside if we're going to be a good hearer of God's word, if we're going to be eager to receive it. The first word is filthiness. And that was actually a medical term that had to do with earwax that had built up excessively that prevented people from hearing. But that's not, I don't think that's what James is, is pointing at here. What he's really pointing, he's not saying get your earwax out. It's really the moral filth in your life. It's those sinful actions that are on the outside of the cup that prevent us from hearing God's word. We need to set all those things aside, all that sinful behavior, and all that remains of wickedness. That was a mean-spirited or vicious attitude. Sometimes it's translated as malice, which is an idea to, 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 to have a desire to see harm come to others. If you're sitting in the pew and you your life is characterized by moral filth and your inside attitudes are characterized by hostility and a desire to see harm come to others, you have no ability to hear God's word or receive it. There have been times in uh, the 20 years I've been here where Gina and I have had a little bit of a disagreement on the way to church. I'm sure that never happens to anybody else, but it happened in, 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 in the van a couple of times. And I will tell you it is very difficult to hear god's word if I know i'm sitting right next to my wife and 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 there's a an obstacle there i've got to get that right and sometimes I can sometimes i it maybe it's later that afternoon that we come to agreement and we ask for forgiveness and we grant forgiveness, but if i'm sitting there with that type of thing going on in the background i'm not listening. you got to put all that off. He says, be ready, you got to pull that uh, put." Put all that off so that the soil of your heart can be ready to receive the word. He says in humility receive it. That's the idea of being teachable. This is strength under control. This is somebody who is is not fencing off areas of their life that they're not going to submit to God's word. They are ready in, in all humility to submit every area of their life to whatever God's word says and what it means makes there he it's having a teachable spirit and it says that word receive is a is actually a word that you might use in hospitality it's the idea of opening up your home putting out the welcome mat if you will, of your home and inviting over a a close friend or a family member that you really want to spend time with. That's the way we receive the word. I want to make space in my mind. I want to welcome it in. I want to spend time with it. I want to think about it. I want to converse with it. And it's the word implanted. The word when we receive it and we're born again, it's as if God has planted the word inside of us and it has the idea of, of springing growth from within, not from without. Your translation might say engrafted, but I think that's not, a, a, it doesn't capture the word very well if it says that because that's something that you do on the outside. The, the implanted is what comes, in, comes out from the inside. You've changed your attitudes. You've changed your, your thought process. You've changed your motivations because of what God has done in, in your heart. And that, word, that implanted word is able to save your soul. It's not only necessary for salvation, and we all understand that, but it's also necessary for sanctification. It, it, it is ultimately the word that, that and Christ, who is the living word, that, that delivers us from sin and death when he returns for us and calls us home or calls us home. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, These are words that I would imagine all of us know and maybe have memorized, but all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Hearing the word of God is foundational to living the Christian life. You can't, it's like oxygen to you and I. We can't live very long without oxygen. A genuine, authentic, Faith cannot live without the Word of God. It's the very air we breathe. So I would ask with James, are you a hearer? Is this the way you're characterized, generally speaking, by hearing the Word of God? The Word is not just for salvation, but it's also constantly, habitually doing its work in us and through us to sanctify us and make us more like our Savior. We need to be hearers. Does James describe you in verses 19 to 21? There's a second diagnostic question. Not only are you a hearer, but secondly, are you a doer? Are you a doer? And you can see this in verses 22 to 25. James says in verse 22, but, but he's going to add something to what he just said. What I just said wasn't completely sufficient. I'm adding something to it now but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves." James says it's not enough to be a hearer only. You need to be a doer. It starts with hearing. That is necessary, but it's not sufficient in and of itself to live out an authentic Christian faith. That word hearer was used to describe first century auditors of a class. If you're an auditor of a class, you're permitted to attend the lectures and listen to the lecture, but you permit the assignments and the exam as optional. Although I did talk to Dr. Murphy on Friday, and, and he said if you audit his class, they're not optional. So it doesn't, it does, the, the, the analogy breaks down if you apply Dr. Murphy to this particular uh, thing. But, but ultimately, we understand what an auditor is. They hear, and then, you know what, they, I'm going to make up my mind later whether I'm actually going to do that. Maybe I've got other things going on in my life, like I've got to move along or something like that, or I've got other priorities. I wonder how many times I've come into this service and I've listened and then I've walked out and I've treated those commands that are so clear in Scripture as maybe optional in my own life. I wonder how many times maybe you monitor a sermon as an auditor critique the, the pastor and the, the presenter and the preacher uh, and then don't really do the assignments that God's Word is, is claiming to, uh, to demand. James says, prove yourselves doers. A better interpretation might be become doers. Become doers, not merely hearers who audit sermons and leave unchanged. It's an imperative here. This isn't a suggestion or a really good idea, it's an imperative, you must do that. If you are not a doer, you're in sin. I sometimes fix uh, leaks at my house on my sprinklers. I hate sprinklers more than most things at my house. Uh, I am not a plumber, that doesn't make me a plumber because I fixed a leaky sprinkler at one point. I built a gazebo in my backyard, that doesn't make me a builder. My brother-in-law is a builder. He actually knows what he's doing. He knows building codes and he knows strengths of, of lumber and spans. And his occupation all day, every day of the week is I work on building things. He is a builder. That's what James has the idea here. All day, every day, it's our occupation to be a doer. We are hearing the word of God and we are doing the word of God. We are putting into practice in our life. James is calling on every believer to be a doer of the word by occupation and by habit. That's who you are. Those that are hearers only delude themselves. That word delude means to to make a miscalculation. You have an error in logic. You have skewed logic. You have false reasoning. And it's in the present tense which means you are continually coming up with the wrong answer about your life you are continually deluded. It's your habit to be deluded. So what's the habitual delusion here? What is James getting at? One commentator wrote this, to be deluded is to be blinded to the reality of one's true religious state. People can think that they're right with God when they really are not. And so it is for those people who hear the word, regular church attenders seminary students, and even seminary professors, but do not do it. They are mistaken, thinking that they are truly right with God. For God's word cannot be divided into parts. If one wants the benefit of, benefits of its saving power, one must also embrace it as a guide for life. The person who fails to do the word is a person who has not truly accepted God's word at all. So how many people believe it's a good idea to be deluded As it turns out, 0 out of 10 people recommend that. It's not a good idea. Do not be deluded about your true spiritual status. James furthers that point in verses 23 and 24 with this illustration of a man looking into a mirror. Look with me at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. A mirror in the first century was a polished piece of metal or brass. They were generally very heavy. They might be laid down as opposed to hanging on a wall. But regardless, it, it was good enough to be able to see what's going on up here. And the picture that James is painting for us here is a man who is looking at himself in a mirror. He's got chocolate or something on his face. He's got something going on. His hair is all mangled. I have kids who sometimes look in a mirror and make no changes, but, but that's the picture. It seems ludicrous that you would do that. But this man has other priorities. He even forgets what he looked like. Spent all that time looking in the mirror and then he doesn't even remember what he looks like and he goes away. And the implication is he left unchanged. This picture of inaction in the physical realm is really illustrating the superficial and temporary effect of listening to God's word and not doing anything about it, not putting it into practice. I hear it, that sounds really good, I love the points, that really does apply to me, and then you walk out and you don't do anything about it. That's not just lazy listening, it's actually listening without faith. It's unbelieving listening. And you contrast that with the doer, the one who is a, both a hearer and a doer in verse 25. He writes, But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This man looks intently. This has the idea of stooping over and taking a long look at it. The mirror's laying on a a table and you're you're really peering into it. He's looking intently. And he looks into a mirror. In this case, it's the perfect law, the law of liberty. It's fully mature. It it tells the truth about everything it speaks about and it's 100% true. It's not, you don't have to be clever to figure it all out. It is true to everything it speaks about. There's no holes in it. It's a perfect reflection of the truth. And because it's law, it's authoritative. It's not a suggestion. It applies to me. It applies to you. In this case, he refers to it as a law of liberty. I heard heard in in Mark's prayer this morning about he's praying uh, about giving. And part of his prayer was, we're not giving because it's a law that we give. What he said was, we're praying because we are so thankful for what God has done on our behalf. See, the law frees us from being slaves of sin and it motivates us not out, of, not out of compulsion, not because of fear of punishment. When we are genuinely born again, we obey not for those reasons, but because we love God and we want to follow God and we want to honor God and His word. That's what he's saying here. It's the perfect law of liberty. Notice that the doer abides by it. He stays beside it. He remains constant in it. This word described a slave in the first century who voluntarily remained with his master. That's what you and I are. A doer remains a slave and a servant of the word of God and they voluntarily submit themselves to it. A doer doesn't take a quick look and forget. He's constantly applying it. If I went over to, I'll say Peggy's house. Peggy looks like a tea drinker. Are you a tea drinker? So T- Peggy goes to make me a cup of tea and, and she, she pours the hot water in and she gives me a tea bag and I take the tea bag and I go like this, and I pull it out, and then I start drinking the water. And I say, you know, this really isn't very good tea. <laughs> you know, Peggy's going to go. Chuck, has Gina never taught you about tea? You need to leave it in the tea bag in. And so what happens over time is the water that's around that tea bag starts tasting like tea. By the way, the tea bag doesn't taste like water. It's just the it. The, the water tastes like tea. That's the way it is when we abide in the word of God. We don't just do that quick little one minute uh uh, Brian always calls them sermonettes for Christianettes. I don't know what I'd call it if I was reading the word and doing that, but it's not a, a two-second thing and I've checked that off, I'm moving on, doing something else. You need to abide in it. If you want God's word to truly transform us from the inside, that's what a effectual doer does. That's what the, the hearer and doer does. He is abiding in it. He's remaining with the word. He's meditating on it. He's chewing on it. He's thinking about it. He's so impacted by God's law that he becomes what he calls an effectual doer. This is somebody who's zealous to put it into action. They're excited to put it into action. They're passionate about putting it into practice in their life. A doer wants to obey and make the adjustments in their life. And what's the result of that type of person? James says they're blessed in what this man will be blessed in what he does. Brian has defined this a hundred times from this pulpit as it's being blessed is in being in the divine state now i now what is that what did he say i I had it what is it the divine state what is it divine state of approval man i i didn't have it in my notes because i remembered it every time until just now (laughs) the enviable state of divine approval there it is i knew i was going to get it somewhere but that's what it means to be blessed when we do God's word, God blesses that. And he looks down, he is, he is pleased with his children that he has adopted into his family as they obey. James says that your unchanged life could very well be the evidence that your profession may not be genuine. And it's consistent with the teaching of his half-brother Jesus in Matthew 7.21, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Many will say to me, not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will do. It's the doers who enter. It's consistent with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law, and by the way, Paul used the word auditors there as well. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. There are numerous places in the New Testament where obedience to the law is conflated with a genuine love of Christ. It's being a doer. Are you a doer? Are you one who has a consistent practice of hearing God's word, remembering God's word, and putting it into practice in your life? That's two questions James would ask for us this morning. He has a final question for us. In verses 26 and 27, first, you know, are you a hearer? Second, are you a doer? And and third, he's going to move from, as Brian says, preaching to meddling. And that is, are you deceived? Are you deceived? Notice that in verse 26, James says, if anyone, if anyone, this is, For every one of us to think about this. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the word. In these two verses, James contrasts two types of religion. In verse 26, he has the religion of the hearer. It's a worthless religion. In verse 27, he has the religion of a doer. It's pure religion. It is an authentic faith. You might say in, in verse 26, it's the religion of the forgetful here. Verse 27 is the religion of an effectual doer. He uses James uses the words religion and religious three times in these two verses. And that word referred to those externals of religion. Attending church, prayer, fasting, partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's what they referred to. That's the word that we see here. And those are all good and necessary things for followers of Christ to do. But the danger for us is when we suppose that those externals satisfy the the, the entirety of our responsibility to live out the word of God. If you think that that being an authentic believer only affects the two or three hours that you happen to be here on Sunday morning and the rest of your life looks dramatically different, you don't have an authentic faith. He uses the word worthless here. Worthless has the idea of of vain, empty, useless. It was used to describe idle pagan worship. That's the type of, of religion that you have if it's just those externals that doesn't bleed over into other aspects of your life. And James points out that uh, he uses a couple of examples here that he wants us to consider carefully to to evaluate whether the Word of God really is lived out in your life or whether you're deceived and it's not having an impact on your life. He warns it's easy to be deceived. He says in, in verse 26 that, if you do all these external things and you believe yourself to be religious, you think yourself to be religious, and yet you can't control your tongue, you're like a, an unbridled horse that is untamed, it has no restraint, your religion is worthless. Why did he pick words? Why did he pick the tongue to pick on here? I was a tester at Edwards Air Force Base, that was my job. I was actually a tester. I did that all day, every day. Uh, And I would have loved to have had a a large data set to make a evaluation. It is said that the average American speaks about 18,000 words per day. And I know there are people in here who speak way more than that. But that's a lot of data to gather, make a conclusion on, 18,000 words per day. And he's saying, Look at your speech. What is your speech characterized by? And it's interesting to note that James doesn't say the exact nature of the unbridled speech that he's talking about. But if you search the scriptures and you don't have to search very hard, there is a lot that the Bible says about sins of the tongue. It could be criticism of others, slander, unwholesome speech, dishonesty, complaining, jealous speech, flattering speech, coarse jesting, impure jokes, The list goes on and on in ways that we can sin with our tongue. James knows that our words are a reflection of our heart. His half-brother said it like this in Luke 6.45, The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. I want you to understand that James is not saying that if you make one hasty word, one hasty word, one sinful word comes out of your mouth, that your whole, your whole faith is a fraud. He is not saying that. Turn over a couple pages to James chapter three. Look at verse two. He'll say this, and I'm guessing a, well, it's a couple chapters. It may take me a while to get there, but he says, "For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle. And he uses the same word there, the whole body as well. There are no perfect men. James knows that. He lived with one. He knows what it's like. Nobody is perfect. That's not what James's point is here. He's not saying that your speech must be perfect because nobody is perfect in this area. But James wants us to consider, what is our speech characterized by? If you He doesn't want you to take a snapshot of one instant. He wants you to take a movie of of what it looks like for you. Is your speech characterized by unbridled, sinful speech? Or is it more characterized by wholesome, speaking the truth, loving others, encouraging others? What are you characterized by? If you think you're religious and you can't control your tongue, you're deceived and your religion, in his words, is useless. It's no better than idol worship. And his point is, evil speech does not flow out of a good heart. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. Your speech is always a reflection of your heart. So that's exhibit A of if if God's word is not impacting your speech, you may have a problem with your faith. Your faith may not be, be authentic. Notice verse 27, he now transitions to a couple of ways that... To show that your faith is authentic. It is of value. Or if it's pure and undefiled in the sight of our God and Father. And James is not giving us a complete definition of religion here. And the kind of religion he likes. There are other things that you would throw in. Like love of God and and other things. He's just giving a couple of examples where it would be obvious. If your religion is authentic. And you're living it out. It will be obvious in your life. The first area is... If your religion is authentic and pure and undefiled in the sight of God our Father there will be a love for those in need. He says he says this visit orphans and widows in their distress. And this is not a social call that's not the word here it's actually a shepherding word that word visit it's the word episkopos, and, and there are shepherding. It's the idea of coming over and showing concern and care and loving, um, lovingly meeting needs. It implies personal contact. That's what's, so are, are you characterized by seeing needs around you and wanting to meet those needs? Because authentic religion will work itself out like that. And it will be motivated from the inside. Do you have a love and concern for the helpless around you? And does it translate into action? It's more than just when Jesus is said to have had compassion on people, it's not, man, so bad for them. No, he took action when it says he had compassion and he healed them and he met their need. Is that you? There's a second example here. Is there a commitment for personal holiness? He says in verse 27, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To keep oneself, to guard yourself. This is your responsibility. It's to be unstained and untainted by the world. And the world is is that world system that Steve talked about this morning. It's, It's the culture that we live in. And frankly, every corner of our culture is is aligning itself more and more against God and against what His Word says. Are you unstained by that? As God's people, we're to be in the world but not of the world. We we aren't aren't to. He's not calling for us to to withdraw into our holy huddle and and never um, associate with non Christians. We are to be salt and light in our society. We are to live as Christians. And, and frankly, it has never been easier, at least in my life, to live as a Christian who will stand out. Now, it's not easy to live as a Christian, but it's easy to stand out as one in the times we live in now because our values are not accepted. Our values, uh, 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 what is good is evil and what is evil is good in the l- world that we live in now. And he's saying, don't, be, don't make friends with the world. He'll say that in James 4, verse 4. We aren't to accept the world's goals, the world's values, the world's priorities, where it conflicts with Scripture. But we are to live as salt and light. James is writing Romans twelve, one and two, before Paul's had a chance to write Romans chapter twelve or any other part of Romans. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to the world and the world's system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you committed to holiness and holy living? James asks three questions. Are you a hearer? Are you a doer? Are you deceived? How do you respond to the word of God really is the litmus test, if you will, of those questions. Are you content with religious activity and, and you know, taking up a little bit of time on Sundays and then going out and living your own life? Maybe making no changes, not allowing the truth to actually impact the way you live? How's your speech? Do you have a concern for others? Are you committed to personal holiness? The way we respond to God's word really is A reflection of our faith. Saints, this is a hard message to preach, and I'm sure it's a hard message to listen to without feeling a little bit of a twinge at times on some of these. Not one of us lives up to this perfectly, and I get it. You're going to be uncomfortable. I need you to know that James is not writing this letter so that people who have authentic Christian faith, who have an authentic faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will leave doubting their salvation. That is not what James is doing. James really wants to, all of us to understand what does authentic faith look like when it comes to responding to God's word? What are you characterized by? It's not absolute perfection that we're talking about here, but it's what do you generally characterize by? What do you love? What occupies your time? What occupies your priorities? There is none perfect except for one. And that's the one that we trust unto salvation. It's the half-brother of James. It's only Jesus who lived a perfect life. It's only Jesus who sacrificed himself on the cross for sinners like you and I. It's only Jesus who endured the wrath that was due for us and satisfied God's wrath by laying down his life on a cross. It's only Jesus who resurrected himself on the third day and defeated sin, Satan, and death. It's only Jesus who is now interceding on behalf of his saints at the right hand of God. And that's the one we trust. And I would urge you to trust in him and, and ultimately as you trust in that living word of God, God's word will become, it will look like this. You'll be characterized by this. Amen. Father, we thank you for these sobering truths. Uh, that James has written for us for our good. Help us, O God, to accurately diagnose our own faith. For those of us who are truly saved, who have an authentic faith in in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I would ask that you would encourage and motivate us onto greater levels of obedience and submission to your Word. Help us to live our faith and and adorn our faith in a way that's pleasing in your sight, O God. For those of us who are deceived, and I'm sure there are some in this room, I would ask that you would open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears and convict and convert them, O God. May these diagnostic questions really lay open their own soul so that you might meet their need, that you might save them that you might make them be born again by the power of your word and the power of your spirit for their own good and for your glory. May you draw them to an authentic faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.